Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They lay down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impels you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Greetings. My name is Leo Manchetti alongside Blake Schmida, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above oneself, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. Hello, folks. Today on the Bob Feller Active Valor Podcast, we are privileged to welcome Admiral Jonathan Greener. How are you doing, Admiral? I'm good, Leo. Thanks. The first thing I wanted to start off with is at what age do you know that you wanted to serve in the Navy? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question, and I, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but <clears throat> this is a good time to be honest. Uh, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy in 1971, and uh, at that time, being a freshman, and I was 18 years old, and I didn't really know if I wanted to be in the Navy then. Uh, it was a free uh, education. I knew I would have a payback uh, tour of duty in the Navy, and uh, so that started in 1975. Even at that point, I thought, well, I'm in a payback tour. Uh, so let me get to the answer to your question. I think it was about 1980. I had completed my uh, first tour of duty, my required service. Uh, at that point, I am 27 years old. And uh, it was really at that point, uh, I am with my now wife, we were engaged. She liked the idea of a Navy career. And I said, okay, I will go beyond my, what's called junior officer tour of duty, my first tour of duty. Uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. But I think, frankly, the, uh, I found that it was um, submarine duty 
was fun. It was with an elite group. Um, we were now being paid uh, about requisite with, I think, what we were doing, whereas before uh, it was a lot of seat time, not much pay, uh, rigorous duty. I wasn't still sure where I was going with my life. And so long answer to a simple question, I'm about 27 years old before I really knew that the Navy is for me. You mentioned uh, being a submariner, and I've always been interested in that. And I don't, hear, I don't get the opportunity to hear a lot of people talk about it. So as a submariner, can you explain some of the intricacies and processes that go into it? Sure. Uh, the, the simple concept is to have, uh, when you're on the surface, um, you let air out of uh, tanks that surround the hull. There are six of them, and they surround the hull of the submarine. So you open valves, basically, that are called vents, and you vent the air out of that, and you submerge. And then, of course, to, to surface, you fill those tanks with air again. So the key is to vent the tanks, submerge, find that point uh, in a submarine where you are what we call neutrally buoyant, where you just float. So if you imagine floating in a swimming pool to that point where you're just kind of hanging there, uh, that's what you want. And then you use the propulsion to drive you through the water. Uh, the United States submarines, our means of propulsion is a nuclear reactor. So you're basically taking the um, water under tremendous pressure that has been irradiated and um, that makes it very hot, but it's under tremendous pressure, so it doesn't boil. That goes into a heat exchanger with fresh water and turns it, it's at a lower pressure, turns it to steam. So that uh, highly pressurized water becomes your means of heating water, turning it to steam. That steam's directed to a turbine, and those turbines uh, turn electrical, uh, create electrical power, and also turn the shaft, and that's your propulsion. Uh, in a typical U.S. submarine, there's about 130 people, about 15 of them are officers, and the rest are the enlisted, and those together make up the crew. Uh, it's, uh, I mentioned in our previous question, it's kind of elite because you're very close to each other. You're all together in the submarine. Everybody has a job. Everybody has to understand damage control, what to do if there's a fire, what to do if there's a leak. Because in both cases, you have to solve that problem immediately uh, or everybody is in dire straits. Uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous threat. So uh, the, the atmosphere is one of dependence on each other. Uh, it's a respect of what the other person does because everybody has a critical job. There's really no freeloaders uh, on a submarine. I'm not implying that freeloaders and other aspects of the military or the Navy, but I would tell you for sure there. And uh, they're highly educated people. I, I enjoyed working with all of them uh, because, uh, frankly, even as an officer leading enlisted folks, I realized that uh, they are me and, and I could be them, uh, except for a change of, of opportunities or decisions earlier in life. And uh, it's also uh, mystical to travel the oceans under sea and where you can't see, but you're moving and moving around and, and avoiding or heading to things based solely 
on acoustics, on what you hear. Uh, so that's kind of a small uh, soliloquy of, of what it's like being on a submarine. You know, it sounds like uh, that kind of environment, you probably built a lot of really close bonds with the people that you're around. Um, you probably have some pretty memorable experiences. What do you think your most memorable experience from your 40-year career is in the Navy? Well, the, it, the most memorable uh, moment or experience, if you will, Blake, is would be uh, when we left Pearl Harbor, uh, Hawaii, I'm on the submarine Honolulu, which is the submarine I was commanding. It's 1991, and we are headed on course 270. We're going west, and I'm in charge of the submarine. We are leaving. I have been in command only about two months, if that, and, uh, and I'm it. I'm now in command. I'm responsible for all uh, that crew at 120 folks, and we're going to the Western Pacific for six months. So the feeling was one of um, remarkable accomplishment, um, fear, uh, trauma, and uh, am I up to the task all, you know, kind of run together uh, in that. But it's definitely uh, a tour of duty, a two-year, two-and-a-half, two-plus-year tour of duty and six months that I, I'll never forget. I had never been to the Far East. Um, and so to go visit Japan, uh, cities in Japan, Singapore, uh, Korea, uh, and Hong Kong was remarkable. And uh, again, experience I'll never forget. Does it ever get very claustrophobic on the submarines? It can be if, if you have claustrophobia, when folks are screened for submarine duty, submarine duty is a voluntary service. You, you don't join the Navy, go to recruit training, and they say, well, we're assigning you submarines. When you're done with recruit training or at some point, uh, and maybe before or while you join the Navy, you indicate your desire to be for submarine duty. So um, it being voluntary, you, you go through a series of aptitude tests, mental aptitude, uh, and there's also psychological. And one of the things they would look for is, uh, can you manage with people in small spaces for long periods of time? And two, do you get claustrophobic? The, you know, frankly, you're busy. Uh, I mentioned before, everybody has a job, uh, but it depends on somebody else. It's, uh, it's just not natural to take what is effectively a cylinder of metal and submerge it for long periods of time in seawater with high pressures above you because you when you go deep. So you're always vigilant uh, in that regard. Uh, but with all of that combined, in some cases, it seems like there's never enough time to get everything done you want to get done when you're there. So some people think, gee whiz, you go away, it must be boring. You're under the sea doing things. Um, is it claustrophobic and boring? And I would say I've never really experienced it, nor have I known anybody that has either. So just out of curiosity, what's the longest a period of time you spent underwater then? Well, as to your question, longest period of time spent underwater, that's, that'd be 73 days. 
that was on a, um, a missile submarine. Uh, it was uh, a Trident submarine, when, and we typically go out on deployment, and you're taking uh, strategic nuclear missiles out to, to uh, out of the way, if you will, to, to be undetectable uh, and be prepared to launch. You're, you are the existential uh, defense, the strategic nuclear deterrence for the country. So you have to be reliable, uh, you have to be undetectable and survivable. And so you go out and hide basically while keeping continuous communication. And you do that at uh, roughly 10 weeks at a time. So we were a little over 10 weeks, but that was the longest underwater. That's incredible. I never imagined it would be for something like 73 days. I'm uh, moving on to ocean engineering. Uh, what inspired you to study this at the U.S. Naval Academy? Well, uh, as I mentioned in our first question, uh, I didn't go to the academy really uh, thinking of a career in the Navy. Um, I wanted to get an education. Um, I could get it without uh, accumulating a bunch of bills through loans and other things. And my uncle, uh, my dad, my dad's brother, lived in Annapolis, and he worked in Washington as an oceanographer for the Navy in the Department of Oceanography. And I thought, you know, that must be so interesting. Uh, I think I want to study oceanography. And uh, when I got to the academy, um, they give you, they review your grades in high school and that, and they give you a few aptitude tests, standardized tests, and they will tend to steer you toward uh, a major in humanities or mathematics or science or engineering. And I had a potential and a propensity for engineering and science. So uh, I was encouraged to go into engineering. They had ocean engineering, which is sort of a combination of oceanography and mechanical engineering. So I chose that. Uh, it was I found it um, interesting, especially when you start to get to your third year, your junior year, then you start studying the, how do you build a bridge? Um, what are the aspects of uh, putting big stanchions underwater? How do you build an underwater vessel and you know all of the forces and the complicated parts and aspects of that? So uh, I, I found it intriguing and uh, I'm glad I did it. It helped me later uh, in, in the Navy. So at the end of your career, you served as the chief of naval operations. Um, what are some of the most important responsibilities that you noticed in this role? Well, it isn't uh, naval operations, I would tell you that. It's an interesting, uh, that title, chief of naval operations, a lot of people will, when they uh, will say, hey, you had a job, you were the chief of Navy operations. And actually, you don't. You don't direct operations. What you do is, um, in a, uh, a, a civilian or a business analogy, you're the chief executive officer of the Navy. And so you, your job is to provide the organization, the training, the commitment. Uh, I'm sorry, the equipping. So uh, organize, train, equip, and man. And you're looking out into the future. You're making sure that the kinds of things that we will need for the Navy based on its size, based on its missions in the future. Um, we are purchasing or preparing to purchase 
you want to make sure that morale is good, that people uh, are prepared to deploy, that they are, in fact, given what they need to deploy, from exercising to uh, education, training, as I mentioned. And, uh, and you're responsible for the organization of the Navy. And what that means is in a changing world and a changing environment, um, where, where should our Navy be? Um, where should it deploy? Where should our ships and aircraft be ported? And uh, is it time to evolve that in the U.S. and overseas? So you're really at headquarters uh, directing a, mo a more future look to the Navy. The, the concept and the job of Navy operations is done at uh, two, the two main headquarters for that are in Hawaii, and that's the commander of the Pacific Fleet, and in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, that title is Commander of Fleet Forces Command and Commander of the Atlantic Fleet. It's a double, double title. There are also uh, jobs in, um, in uh, Italy, uh, in Gaeta, uh, uh, Italy, which is the, the um, I'm sorry, Naples, Italy. And that's the commander of Navy forces in Europe. So that's the Mediterranean. And in uh, Bahrain, where it's commander of uh, Central Command Navy forces. So uh, that's where the Navy operations are directed not in Washington, outside of Washington. So after your career in the Navy, um, we noticed that you had joined the National Bureau of Asian, Asian Research. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is um, and the work you do there? Sure. The National Bureau of Asian Research is, uh, it's an interesting name because it's named after um, an organization uh, that was called the National Bureau of Economic Research. And the person that instigated the organization thought that was such a cool name because it so perfectly defined what this organization that did economic research did, which was to provide research. Uh, in this case, it's uh, on Asia and in the Asia Pacific region. And I should include the Indian Ocean to be uh, more, more correct. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. And it's, if you simplify what it does, its job is to inform the public, uh, members of Congress, uh, legislative branch, the executive branch, so the departments of state, predominantly Homeland Security and Defense, to inform them on issues of, of research in the Indian Ocean, uh, Pacific Ocean region, Asia, to educate. Uh, those same folks and to influence them on matters of importance. So this is an organization of uh, approximately a, a hundred folks, let's say. Uh, it's headquarters for finances and business element of it is in uh, Seattle, Washington. Most of its work is done in Washington, D.C. Most of the members that do the research are uh, just completed their master's degree in economics, political science, international relations, uh, sometimes engineering. Uh, the organization uh, provides this, uh, this insight, uh, helps to educate folks in the technologies of Asia, uh, economics of Asia, energy sources in Asia, security in Asia, uh, and in some cases, the 
the geopolitical aspects, that kind of that combination they're in. So there are folks doing various and sundry studies. Uh, they're usually funded by a grant from a company or an organization. So the State Department may say, hey, we need to know more about um, Cambodia and uh, where is Cambodia going on this, that or the other. We need to know more about the South China Sea. We need to know more about fill in the blank and they'll provide a grant. Uh, and then some members of the National Bureau of Asian Research will chair a study and then they will go out and market and bring in uh, other analysts from other organizations. Uh, usually it's from a university in the Washington area and maybe other think tanks um, that, uh, for example, Brookings Institute uh, helped contribute to it. The uh, Institute of Peace uh, contributes to it. And uh, so that's part of the strengths of the organization. You, you have a staff of 100, but with the connections, the network, uh, and sometimes the fiscal resources to go out and bring others in for specific studies, rather than have a large organization that uh, delves in those studies alone. Uh, when you do that, that is you go out and, and bring a network in, you tend to have a more objective output. And the uh, NBR likes uh, to think of its products as, as I mentioned, definitely nonpartisan. They're not there for profit and objective. And uh, there's, there's no, uh, there's nothing axe to grind. There's no points to make for the sake of the organization because the organization is not a lobbying uh, organization or a fundraising organization. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a lot of the work you do involves uh, having great communication skills. And I was wondering if you ever had to learn a second language uh, in any of these aspects. No, I didn't, but I tell you, there's uh, I thought it would be when I first went to Japan in 1998, I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity. I should learn Japanese. And uh, we had three children. They were with us. They have subsequently all learned Japanese. My wife learned Japanese, but I was gone a lot um, on the command ship and going to other countries. And I started learning Japanese and we went to Korea and I made a mistake in the middle of a, uh, a, a dinner. It's a small dinner, fortunately, and decided it would be a great idea to give a toast. And I should have given it in Hangul, something short and sweet. And somewhere along the line, I started mixing Hangul, Korean, with Japanese, which was insulting. And I uh, learned at that point, you know, I better for until I get the time to do it right, just stick to English. Most people will understand that and maybe read from a three by five card if I'm going to try and provide a toast or a greeting in a foreign language. Uh, but many people who do go over to Japan or Korea or Singapore um, or uh, the embassy in China will definitely learn the language. In some cases, you have to, for example, if you're going to the embassy uh, while you're there for you know, a period of time. But in the, the jobs that I had overseas, we were traveling a lot. So I wasn't in one place in time enough, uh, with enough time, nor did I just take the time to learn the language. It's sort of one of those things I regret I didn't get done. 
I had a question that was a little more uh, specific to the states. Um, do you have a favorite baseball team? Um, and if so, what inspired your fandom? Well, I was born and raised in a small town outside of Pittsburgh. So the Pittsburgh Pirates became my team, and they still are. I have the logo where living in Annapolis, Maryland, so most people down here just shrug when they see that. But it, it's the Pirates. Uh, during my youth of the 60s uh, and 70s, they were a good team. They struggled a little bit in the 60s, but near the end of the 60s and into the 70s, they had strong teams. Um, we've fallen on some hard times uh, until uh, about 2012 through about 2015, 16, and we had some good years making the playoffs. But we're back into a rebuilding phase now. So it's unfortunate, but that's my team. Did uh, you ever get a chance to go to some games since you were so close to Pittsburgh growing up? Yes, yeah, and, and the old Forbes Field, uh, which is really iconic. It's a very unique stadium, like many were in those days. Uh, I'll never forget the right field was only 300 feet, but the fence, uh, the right field fence, like uh, the left field fence in, in uh, you know, Fenway Park went very high. It wasn't a wall. Fenway has a wall. It was, a, it was really a chain link fence. Um, and, uh, and in the center field was almost 420 feet or 440 feet. It was ridiculously long. And then it would come around to left field, which would be kind of consistent with the other ballparks. It was by no means symmetric. And it was truly asymmetric. Uh, so that was fun. I, I just remember going there. Then we, we had Three Rivers Stadium, which was a kind of a cookie cutter, exactly like the Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia and uh, Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati and Three Rivers. They were all very much the same looking, very symmetric, the opposite. Forest Field. And now uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, they have a, a wonderful uh, stadium. PNC Park is really, really good looking. A wonderful backdrop of the city of Pittsburgh, uh, especially in a night game, uh, city illuminated. Do you think players like uh, Bob Feller and other ball players who served in World War II have had a lasting legacy on uh, not only the Navy, but also other armed forces? Well, I think they do. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I, people are always uh, sort of inspired and, and they appreciate when people who are sort of iconic took the time to, to serve their country, particularly in the military. Today, as we know, it's, it's all voluntary. Uh, some folks uh, come out of, say, an academy and they'll serve and then they'll go play a sport. David Robinson, Roger Staubach are two um, folks from the Naval Academy. We think of often those of us go to the academy. But when you go back to those folks that played in the, um, in the decades ago, 50s, 60s, uh, you, you think of, you know, there's Stan Musil, Bob Feller, of course, um, Whitey Ford, and, and others who actually uh, where baseball players uh, stopped their career and then went away and served their country and then came back and established themselves as Hall of Famers. That's remarkable to be able to have that broken period like that, uh, serve your country and come back. And folks don't think of them uh, right off the bat because just the way our media works today, 
and public affairs and relations and you know, we're on the now and the today. Uh, but if you open your aperture and look back there, folks that do see it say, I can't believe somebody was able to do that. And when they read about it or find out about it, then they do find it remarkable and inspiring. Yes, definitely today our society is a, what have you done for me lately? We don't often take the time to look back at some of the past achievements uh, that we have as a society. Um, Admiral Greener, thank you for coming on. You've been a great guest. And uh, that's all for today, folks. Thanks, guys. To our listeners, this conversation with Admiral Jonathan Greener concludes this episode of the American Valor Podcast. This conversation is brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, the Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Indians. Please feel free to leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Act of Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevaloraward.org. There you can learn about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of their awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor Podcast and more. For Leo Machetti, Blake Schmida, and everyone at the American Valor Podcast, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.